We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 18 through 28 this morning. Hebrews 7, 18 through 28. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. We draw near to God by this better hope. Verse 20, And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath. But he, Jesus, became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Well, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he is a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, he's blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins first, but then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus, show us yourself. Show us how much better you are. Show us uh, in a new way, in a fresh way. God, lead through this time. I just want to get out of your way and let you lead here. I want to follow you. I want to hear you. I want to listen to you. Speak through your word. And I pray for a witness, an encounter of the risen Lord this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. Um, Matt, we, we all love a good trial, don't we? I, I grew up um, with my mom and I used to watch trials all the time. It was, I don't know, uh, the O.J. Simpson trial. Do you guys remember that? We were glued. My mom and I would watch that thing the whole time. Recently was the Derek Chauvin trial. We all... We all love a good trial. Well, interestingly enough, the Bible would say that all of life is a trial. Isn't that interesting? That your life, that my life is like, like, like a trial. It's an, well, and it's even an unavoidable trial. This is something that everybody experiences, that we all go through. And the writer to the Hebrews is pressing the idea of Jesus being our high priest, and he's been pressing this idea for a while, and we've been talking about that. But today he's going to take this on a, a little bit of a different angle, He's going to describe the high priest in a different way, which is a lot more convenient for us because we don't have really priests in the modern world or a priesthood or a a system like that. In their day, in the ancient world, um, there there was no such thing really as humanism. You know that. Everybody had a religion and every religion had a priesthood. So the, the, the metaphor of a priesthood stuck in their minds. For us, it's a bit of a leap. We've got to educate ourselves first, figure it out, and go, and go that direction. Well, today he's going to talk about the priesthood in a term that we will be able to understand. He's going to talk about it in terms of a lawyer, of an advocate. That's what the word means in verse 25. Um, verse 25 introduces a new image that we're going to just kind of run with and explore today. 
In verse 25, it says that Jesus intercedes for us. And in the Greek, that word is describing someone who is pleading for you before a judge. That's the idea of it. So we're going to go with this because in some ways, it'll be a lot easier for us to understand. Our brains are going to, we have a, we have a little bit of an advantage here. Um, the word intercede isn't just something that priests do. Of course, priests do intercede. They intercede to God on behalf of worshipers. But the word intercede also in the Greek has a very legal meaning to it, a legal flavor to it. It also meant to appear as a representative in court. It means to represent somebody who's on trial. And in this we find one of the most incredible, I think, really um, interesting themes of the Bible, and that's the theme of life being a trial. Your life is a trial. And this idea plays itself out in every day, in your mind, psychologically, moment by moment, every second, you are on trial in your brain. In fact, it's unavoidable. You can't not relate in this way because of just being human. Let me see if I can, under, if I can unpack this a little bit. Um, underneath all of our efforts, all of your efforts, all of my efforts to get approval from people, verdicts about how you look physically or verdicts about how you're doing vocationally, verdicts about how you're doing personally, the idea behind that is your acceptance. Something being proclaimed about you, your accomplishments, and you need these things. This is very anthropological. It's what it means to be a human being. You need this. You get home, you know, we, we've all experienced this. You get home from a gathering, you know, a wedding or graduation or time with your friends or whatever it is. You go on Instagram and you see all the pictures that people have been posting about, the, about that event and you scroll down and what's the, <laughs> when do you stop with the pictures? The ones that are about you, right? You look at the pictures of yourself and when you see those pictures, what do you think? Well, here's what I think. Gosh, in my mind, I didn't think I smiled like that. I didn't know I looked like that. When I took that picture, I thought I, looked, I had a ghost version of myself, and now I'm realizing it didn't look like that at all. In my mind, my shirt fit a lot better. In my mind, um, when I was laughing with those people, I didn't feel like I looked like that when I was laughing. Do I really look like that? Is my, okay, is my posture really that bad? oh my gosh, my neck juts out. I, I had no idea that I, I looked like that. Does my belly really bulge out like that? Right? Don't we think like that? Do you know what's happening? You have an image in your head of what you hope you look like to other people. And in that picture, you find out that that image does not match with reality. There's the ideal and there's the real. And that's where the tension is. And there's a sense in which you feel naked when you see that picture, especially on social media. You go, oh my gosh. You wish you could tell your friends, please don't post that one. Or can you please erase that, right? Sometimes we say that to our spouses. Don't put that one on, right? Like you've been walking around confidently not knowing that your zipper was down all day. It's one of my favorite things to do as a pastor when I'm marrying somebody, when I'm officiating a wedding. I do this almost every time because it's just so fun. 
that the groom is sitting before, standing before me with his bride. She just walked down the aisle. They're so happy, and the music's going, and I go to him. I go, your zipper is down. And I see his face go, and his hand slowly moves, and he feels that it's up, and he goes, you son. And I'm just like, yes. He has an ideal version, and I like to mess with that a little bit. You also walk around with an image in your head of what you think your vibe is, right? In other words, what kind of person you are, you emanate, what your affect is to other people, what your character or your soul looks like, you could say. Are you you, uh, jovial and easygoing? Is that your vibe? Are you the kind of person, I'm, I'm serious and intense? I don't care what people think about me. Is that your vibe? Are you always in control? Or are, you more, are, you, are you more blasé? Are you a lovable, per, lovable person? Or are you a hard-to-love person? Right? How good are you? Are you a good person? Are you a bad person? Are you, you know, um, what's your Enneagram number? Are you, do you walk around as an eight in your mind, as a one, as a two? I, you, we have these, this is who I am, right? Here's what's interesting, and I think this is why these things take off, like Enneagram and all of these other things. Here's what's interesting. Come to find out, everybody's going through this to a certain extent. This is human. What's the verdict? Who am I? Right? You, you can't not care about this, unfortunately. Everybody goes through this to a certain extent. No matter how hard you may try to live satisfied with your own evaluation of yourself or your own verdict or your own pronouncement, whether you're good, bad, beautiful, or ugly, let's be real, you can't. You need an outside system to to proclaim a verdict. Whether it be social media or the Enneagram or your friends, your mom, your dad, whatever it is, you need someone to say, this is, this is you. You can't just live with your own evaluation. You desperately need pronouncement from the outside. You need to know. Or maybe you're afraid to find out. Maybe you're afraid to know. But basically, you're living your entire life trying to prove yourself so that you can get those verdicts, so that you can get those pronouncements, so you can be a little bit more comfortable in your own skin. That is our plight. Your life is a trial. And it's happening all the time in your mind. It's happening right now. This is no secret, like I said, in the world of social media. This is how they turn likes into quantifiable cash. This is how it makes so much money. They know that people's opinions count. How many people liked it? How many people saw it? How many people loved it? Why didn't they respond? How come they, I know they saw it, but how come they didn't like it? What's going on there? What's all of this about, right? This is why you can, you know, the more people that like your channel, Coca-Cola will contact you and say, hey, can we put a 30-second ad on your YouTube channel because I noticed that 100,000 people are liking you right now. And if they like you, maybe they'll like us and they'll buy more of our stuff. That's how it works. My son watches um, something on YouTube called The Outdoor Boys. And it's this family, this crazy dad from Alaska, who takes his four, five, six-year-olds out in the middle of the woods and survives with them. And it's just the craziest show. 
And it's like these homemade videos. And at some point, before I knew that this was, that YouTubing was actually a thing, I was like, how, why does this man go to work? I was thinking, good night, buddy, get a job. And then I realized two million people are watching these videos of him, him having a Nerf war with his kids in their basement. Two million views. And, I, and then I, I realized that people are like REI and Patagonia, they're sending him stuff, just sending him stuff to promote on his videos. And I realized this, this man is working. That's what's going on here. It's incredible. The more people like, it, that's how it works. Opinions count, and the marketing world knows this. They know this very, very, very much. Um, when I was studying for this, I was reading another sermon about this topic, and a quote was used, and I just have to steal it because it's just so perfect. It's, about, it's from a secular, a very a celebrated secular person named Arthur Miller. Here's what he says. He says, for years, I looked at life like a case at law. Arthur Miller says, not a Christian, secular, celebrated writer. He says, it was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are, how smart you are. Then later on, what a good lover you are. And later, what a good father or husband you are. Finally, you prove how wise or how powerful or whatever. But underlying it, underlying it all, I see now, I always made an assumption that when, when, moved on, when moved on some kind of upward path towards some elevation, or I don't even know what, I could be justified or condemned, he says, a verdict at any rate. I think my disaster began, this is so profound, he said, I think my disaster began when I looked up one day and I realized that the bench was empty. No judge in sight, and all that remained was the endless argument with myself. This pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which of course is another way of saying despair. Absolute despair. Arthur Miller is saying that his life is one big trial in which he's arguing and pleading to other people because, but he, he realizes there's something cosmic in this. There's some, some, something or someone that he's trying to be approved by and his despair came when he looked, this judge that he desperately wants, he looked into his point of view, there is no God. And now he's in a really tough spot. I want there to be a God. I need there to be a God, but there's not a God. That equals despair because there's no one to pass a verdict and I can't depend on myself. Whew. Incredible. You're trying to prove yourself and you have to get it from the outside. You cannot rest in your own evaluation. Someone else has got to pronounce you or has. And you're now operating on that assessment of yourself, good or bad. Some of us had parents that gave us some good identity. You are good. Other people have given us some really bad things that we have to work through. And it's like an operating system going on in our mind. I am bad. I am ashamed. I am bad. I'm a fraud. And we operate that way, trying to prove, tell me I'm not bad, tell me I'm not a fraud, tell me I don't have to be ashamed, tell me I'll do anything, I'll get the degrees, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do this, I'll do that, tell me, tell me, tell me that I'm not bad. And on the outside, we look, we say, wow, that person's so well achieved, look how, look how well cultured they are, look how educated they are, wow, they've really climbed up in their business, but underneath it all, firing it, is this trial, someone tell me that I'm good. 
Are you, are you following what I'm saying here? <clears throat> this is undeniable, and you can't not care about this. And profoundly, underneath it all, with all the pronouncements and verdicts and evaluations, you're making an appeal with your life, are you not? An argument, are you not? You're making an appeal before a judge, before God. Here's my case. I rest my case. This is my story. You're looking for a word from the God of the universe. Christianity says that there really is an ultimate bench before which we are arguing. There is an ultimate court that we all know we will ultimately have to appear before. Intuitively. Like I said, you can't help but operate that way. And the Bible says that everyone, whether they're a believer or not, deep down knows this. They understand this. Even if you don't believe in God mentally, you know in your heart that there is a judge, that you're being watched, that you're, you're weighing out the goods and the bads, constantly adding things up and adjusting. That is the mental world. So that's what this passage is getting at here when it's talking. That's the new twist he's putting on a priesthood. Okay, the two metaphors are really the same idea. Now, in the modern world, um, like ours, where humanism is prevalent in both the church and, uh, and the secular world, there's a romanticized idea that we can kind of represent ourselves in court. Have you seen like movies or, or plays about this where someone's bold enough to say, I represent myself, and we go, oh, yeah, that's the American way, you know what I mean? I speak for myself, I'll get out of this myself, Right? But um, real attorneys know how absolutely ludicrous that actually is. Real attorneys go, oh, that's just not how it works. You, in the real world, you have to have an advocate. One of the things that Nicole and I are now nerding out on late at night are those old cop shows. They're all on YouTube now. You know, the cops, the bad boys, what you gonna do? You know, that, you know we love to see bad guys getting tackled or the crazy lies that they come up with. You know, I don't know how that cocaine got in my pocket. We're, they're not my pants, actually. I just put them on. You know, just the, the things. We just love to, to watch this whole thing. But when they make an arrest, because you have to have an advocate, what, is it, what do they say? What do police say? You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be held against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If you can't afford an attorney, one will be given to you because you have to have an attorney. You've got to have an advocate. One will be given to you in a court of law. You've, you've got you to have that. And this passage is saying the old legal system, the old attempt at advocacy was flawed. It wasn't working. The old priesthood, the old lawyers were inadequate representatives. That's what the author to Hebrews is saying here. But that doesn't mean he wants to say that you have to be alone in this. You don't have to represent yourself. In those days, if someone got in trouble and had to appear before a magistrate or a local ruler or a king or an emperor, if you got in trouble, you did not want to appear before an authority person alone. <laughs> you did not want to do that. People that go alone are crazy. People that go to, uh, and I, in the same way, people that go to the ultimate bench before God alone um, are nuts. People that go alone are religious people. Religious people who think that they can argue themselves based on their own merit. 
they're going it alone. They're saying, I can save myself. I can present a sound enough case that I've been so good and morally good that God's going to let me go, that God's going to pronounce a good verdict. And we hear that and we think, that's crazy. The same way a lawyer would watch a movie where someone decides to advocate for themselves and they'd go, well, that's not how it works, right? People that go alone are crazy. People that go alone um, in Christianity are religious folks that think, well, I may, not, I, may not be, I may not be perfect, but you know, no one's perfect. I'm basically a good person. But that's not what Christianity is. According to this passage, Jesus is the advocate that you need. Not just for one when you're saved, but ongoingly, as a way of life, Jesus, as a way of thinking. Jesus is the advocate that we need. In the trial that you are unavoidably in, in your brain, Jesus is your advocate. Look at verse 24. It says, but, or, in, or you could say, but means in contrast to the old system, the old priesthood, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely, perfectly. In other words, it's a perfect advocacy. Those who come to God, the ultimate bench, through him, because he always lives to intercede or advocate for them. Are you you seeing where I'm getting this whole theme? I'm not just making it up. It's right there in verse 24 and 25. That's what he's saying. Now think about this. If your advocate's performance in court, um, well, your advocate's performance in court will either make you or break you. It's very important that you get a good lawyer. No doubt, Derek Chauvin spent a lot of time and money researching on what would be the best lawyer, right? O.J. Simpson had a lawyer famously that got him off of, off of it. He was that good and that skilled good at what he did, that skilled at it. In other words, if your advocate wins, you win. See, right? If your advocate loses, then you lose. You've lost. All of the benefits of your advocate's eloquence and brilliance are imputed to your case and are there for you in that moment. Why? Because your advocate is not just your advocate. He's your, another word for it, is your representative. He represents you to this bench. In other words, when you hire a lawyer, you are saying, you are going to be the the best version of myself to the judge. You're going to be eloquent. You're going to be brilliant. You're going to know the facts. You're going to be able to spin things. You're going to know the the legal system backwards and forwards. You're going to be the perfect vicarious substitute for me before the judge. It's extremely important. You are in your advocate. Your advocate is your substitute. And what what we're being told here is, in that way, extremely powerful about Jesus. In essence, we're being told what it means to even be a Christian, not what it means to become, not just what it means to become a Christian, but what it means to be ongoingly a Christian person. To be a Christian means that you are, another, the way Paul would put it, you are in him. You're in Christ. 
Paul is always getting on this. It's a constant loop in the Apostle Paul's writing. It's called, scholars call it union with Christ theology. It's, it's him being your substitute and you're in him. Being a Christian, well, let me put it this way. Being a Christian is not, let me tell you what a Christian isn't based on this. Being a Christian is not, well, I pray to Jesus, I ask him for help, and then I try to live like Jesus lives, and I go to church and I read my Bible. That's not a Christian. That's not what it means. Don't you see? That's to, a, that's to appear before court as your own advocate. I'm going to follow Jesus' example. I'm going to be the best that I can be, and I'm going to read my Bible and pray. You're being your own advocate right there. Those things may be involved, but you're using those things as a basis for your salvation. That's not what it means to be a Christian. We would say, that's crazy. That's representing yourself. That's crazy. You need an advocate. And this is why I believe an awful lot of people... Um, in, in the church are maybe not Christians. Because they think that this is the way I'm going to advocate for myself. They believe in it because they come to church, they try to follow his teachings, they have some general understanding that he died for them on, their, on the cross for their sins. I, I used to do, okay, I have done years and years and years and years and years of juvenile hall and prison ministry as a pastor. I would go in and do church when I lived in Palm Springs. Every Tuesday for two years, I would go in and do a church service for juveniles in, in the juvenile hall in, um, what town was that, Indio? And then here in Washington and other places. And when it came to the doctrines of the faith, they believed all of those things. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. I believe, and yet there was no sense that their life had to change at all. There was no sense that that had to have an effect on the way that they lived. They had it, but if you, if you put a, a test, a piece of paper with you know, bubbles that you fill in, multiple choice or whatever, they, they would surely ace that test. It's not the same thing as understanding him as your advocate. See? According to the Bible and according to this passage, Jesus is the ultimate advocate. He stands as your representative before the ultimate throne, the ultimate bench, in the ultimate trial before the court, which is the only court that counts. That's who Jesus is. That's what it means to have Jesus as your advocate, and that's what it means to be a Christian. Now, um, I have to admit that in the past, before really getting into this whole studying it, I've taught this bad before and I've seen other <laughs> I've heard other preachers that I now know that teach this in a different way uh, they you know they kind of paint a picture that Jesus walks into a grand courtroom with a caseload and the, you know at the bench there's God the Father and Jesus looks through a handful of file folders and finds the one that says manje on it <clears throat> and he opens it up and says oh yeah 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 father I plead the case for Mike manje I know, you know, there's all these, I'm seeing in my file, there's all these promises that, he's, that he'd changed, but he, he just really hasn't changed all that much. And I, and I know he's been a Christian now for a really long time, and yet still struggling to grasp a lot of things, and there's some real stubborn things going on in his life. And, and, and then he says, but you know, give him another chance, God, for me. Do it for me. Come on. And God kind of says, oh, all right. <laughs> for you, I'll do it. And we think that's what it means. If that's, if that's the intercessory work of Jesus, well, if that's the intercessory work of Jesus, I, for me, I'd have to ask, how long can he keep that up? <laughs> you know? 
How long are you going to be able to keep using the same old case for me if this is an ongoing thing, when I keep, when I keep making mistakes? Because there's no particular reason why the Father can't, some, can't someday say, look, you've been here for Him before. And He's even a pastor now. He should be well beyond this stuff. He's a minister. There's no excuse for him. Your same arguments, Jesus, aren't going to work this time. Sorry, case closed. I'm out of mercy for him. We're done. That's kind of where the analogy breaks down. But that's not the kind of advocate that Jesus is. That's not what it's talking about. That's not the idea that he's describing. You see, an effective attorney doesn't just spin and manipulate and appeal That might work for a while, but again, how long can you keep that up? If your attorney keeps representing you time after time after time for the same offenses, at some point the judge is just a bad judge if he just keeps going going for it. But God is the best, the perfect judge. No, an effective attorney actually has an argument, has a real substantive case for their client, right? Right? According to this passage, Jesus is not in heaven asking for mercy. That's what what blew me away when I finally started to pick this apart. You know what he's doing? Look at verse 27. It says, unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day after day. You see what I'm saying? First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once Um, And for all, when he offered himself. Okay, according to this, Jesus isn't interceding for you based on mercy. He's interceding for you based on justice. Did you know that? He's interceding for you because it would be unjust in his argument. It would be unjust for God not to forgive you. Even when you keep making mistakes. Your attorney says to God, it would be wrong, it would be unjust if you, didn't, if you denied him or her your, your grace and your forgiveness. And in other words, he's saying, Father, you demand justice. You are a just God. And my friends here at Calvary Wallingford, the people on whose behalf I'm speaking, your advocate would say they are guilty. Absolutely. Mike did all those things. He is guilty but I've already paid for it. I've made this payment. Therefore, Father, it would be wrong and unjust for you to demand another payment because I've already paid it. He's advocating for you based on a permanent fact in history that he died on the cross for your and my sins once and for all. It's been paid once and for all. So he comes before God with an argument, a substantive fact that your fines have been paid. He would say, and therefore, because I've made payment for this debt, I'm not here asking for mercy for my brothers and sisters, Jesus would say. I'm, I'm demanding justice for them. That's a good lawyer. That's a perfect case. The book of Isaiah and Jeremiah say that the justice and and righteousness of God are inexorable. They cannot be moved. In other words, he's not going to bend. God is not up there going, ah, well, 
mankind will be mankind. You know. No, it is a perfect justice. And that's the dilemma that we're all in. We're in a world right now where our, so, our society is crying out justice. We want justice, equity, justice, right? That's a big deal right now. The problem with that is, well, we all know that, we all know that without a judge, what hope is there for this world, right? Without a perfect judge, what hope is there for the world that we're in? But with a perfect judge, what hope is there for you? Right? What hope is there for me? You want to talk about equity and getting what we deserve. And yet the Bible defines true equity and justice by the most innocent being in the universe dying for someone else's sins and says, there's a definition of justice for you. That our world, when we say social justice, that's not what we mean. And yet that's the only one that solves the problem, isn't it? Someone paying for it and saying, because of that, I come to you, Father, demanding justice. How dare us think, whether we're Christians or not, that we can prove ourselves every day Every day, we're trying to prove ourselves. Every day, we're making arguments and pleading our case. Every day, we're reasoning things out in our marriages, in our relationships, in our work, and what we do, what we think. Well, yeah, I did that, but at least I did this. Well, yeah, I've got this habit, but I've also got these other good things. Well, yeah, I forgot to do this, but you're forgetting that I remembered to do this. When we talk to our spouses, I'm guilty of that. You forgot to take out the trash. Yeah, but I did all the dishes. I'm trying to balance it out. Look at it. See? right? We do that all the time. I'm looking for a verdict. And I'm trying to get out of a bad verdict. Don't you see, we're trying to represent ourselves and it's crazy. It won't work. It'll go on and on and on and on and on forever. And the famous, uh, famous go-to passage about advocacy, it's 1 John chapter 1, where we find that incredible verse that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and what? Just. To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't say he's faithful and merciful. It doesn't say he's faithful and gracious, although certainly he is. But it, it rests the weight of this theology on God's justice. Now, let me switch back to the metaphor of the priesthood so I can show you something real fast here. High priests were absolutely covered from head to foot in gold and jewels. You think about that? They were radiant people. When they were all garbed out, when they had all their thing on, uh, I mean, basically the entire net worth of the nation of Israel was in the ephod, was in the, what they wore, which is basically a bunch of really beautiful, expensive jewels. So, when the high priest showed up, I mean, it was obvious that he was there. That's why in, in the book of Acts, when uh, Paul talks back to the high priest, remember that? And, and the high priest has Paul smacked on the face. And Paul comes back and says, God will smack you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> and they say to Paul, how could you talk to the high priest that way? It wasn't that Paul didn't care. He couldn't see. He said, oh, brothers, I'm so sorry. I didn't know that he was the high priest. For the law says, don't talk against the ruler of your people. 
So either, scholars say, either the high priest, this was an illegal meeting where the high priest was not wearing his official garb, he was still in his PJs or something, or Paul's eyesight was affected, or both. He couldn't see. But the high priest, out of all the other priests, you knew who the high priest was. I mean, he was a glittering thing. You know, you know, if it was on TV, they would give a warning that, hey, there might be some flash photography and some stuff. If you're sensitive to light, put your sunglasses on. I mean, it was, he was a glorious, radiant being. To say that Jesus is your high priest is to say that God has worked things out in the Godhead so that your sin has been dealt with, but not just that. Don't stop, don't stop with the negative. Think of the positive. You're not just pardoned. It's not just a matter, it's, it's a matter, it's not just a matter of mercy. It means that the Father looks at you and he sees absolute, dazzling, radiant beauty. That's what it looks like for, for to say that Jesus is your advocate. Being a Christian is not just a matter of forgiveness and pardon. We, we, we think that. I'm a Christian so that I can be forgiven so that when I die, I go to heaven. That's typically, n- n- no, no. Interesting, by the way, in Acts chapter two, when Peter gives the first sermon, of a Christian, the first Christian sermon about what the gospel is, there is nothing in it about dying and going to heaven. Now, certainly you do. That's a biblical doctrine. Yes, when you die, you go to heaven. But that's not what he was stressing when he said, here's the gospel of the new church. He did not stress that. He did talk about through the church, heaven coming to earth. The kingdom of God ruling and reigning on the earth. Bringing it through us. We tend to focus on just that peace. In other words, if you think negatively about your salvation as you know, forgiveness from, and pardon from sin, that's just the half of it. It also means that you're, you're just as if you never did that sin. Think of it. Think of this. God sees you just as if you've never once told a lie. Think of that. He sees at you just as if you never once exaggerated the truth or minimize the truth. He sees you as if you've never thought those lustful thoughts or covetousness or anger, as if you came out of your mom's womb perfect and stayed that way the duration of your entire life. Because you're in Christ, he sees you as that. That's how God looks at you. Because you're in Christ. Um, Let me read this quote to you by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's so good. He says, to make it quite practical, I'm just going to let him speak here. I have a very simple test, Martin Lloyd-Jones says. After I have explained the way of Christ to somebody, I say, now are you ready to say that that you're a Christian? And they hesitate. And I say, what's the matter? Why are you hesitating? And so often people say, well, I don't feel like I'm good enough yet. I don't feel like I'm ready to say I'm a Christian yet. And Lloyd-Jones says, and at once I know that they have been wasting my breath. They're still thinking in terms of themselves. They have to do it. It sounds very modest. 
Jones says, to say, well, I don't think I'm good enough. But it's, he says, it's a very denial of the faith. The very essence of the Christian faith is to say that he is good enough and I am in him. That's the essence of Christianity. He's good enough and I am in him. As He goes on, as long as you go on thinking about yourself like that and saying, well, I'm not good enough. Oh, I'm not good enough. You're denying God. You're denying the gospel. You're denying the essence of the faith and you'll never be happy, he says. You will not be happy. You'll be miserable because it will never end. He goes on, you will think you're better at times and then you'll find that you're not so good at other times as you thought you were. You'll be up and down forever. It'll be a constant roller coaster ride under this old priesthood. How can, he says this to conclude. He says, how can I put it plainly? He says, it doesn't matter if, listen to this, this is so good. He says, here's the plainest of it all. It does not matter if you have almost entered into the depths of hell. It does not matter if you're guilty of murder as well as every other vile sin. It does not matter from the standpoint of being justified before God at all. You are no more hopeless than the most moral and respectable person in the world. Doesn't get much more plain than that. That's where our salvation is. And that breeds confidence because it's not in your ups and downs. It's not in your three steps forward and two steps back. It's not based on your good days or your bad days. Now, if you understand this and it sinks in, it's gonna do something to you. This is gonna do something to you. The more you get this and grasp it, it means, first of all, you're never gonna be condemned, ever. This is Romans 8. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Zero, zilch, none, For those that are in Christ Jesus, what do you do when you're walking along and all of a sudden out of nowhere, you get those flashes of memories of that stuff that you've done wrong? You you know what I'm talking about? Those that just kind of go in and you're like, "Ah!" you know, they come out of nowhere. What are you going to do? Are you going to say, well, other than that, I've been pretty good. (laughs) No, you're advocating for yourself. See, as soon as you try to do that, you're being your own advocate and you're going to lose. Instead, you need to take out a Bible verse or a hymn or something. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Right? The famous hymn. Secondly, you'll be a courageous person. You'll be extremely brave the more you understand this, if you know that you can stand with ultimate confidence before the ultimate court, before the ultimate judge, what else is going to move you then? If you can stand before God and know that you are righteous in Christ, what's it going to matter what your boss thinks? Right? What's it going to matter what your wife says? What's it going to matter what your husband thinks? What's it going to matter what your parents have said about you? What's it going to matter what your kids think about your faith and who you are and blah, 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 blah? I mean, it's going to affect you, but it won't wreck you. I stand before the ultimate bench. I've been pronounced forgiven. And finally, well, actually, two more things. You'll learn joy and you'll be able to laugh again. I like this one. 
joy, right? Um, if you're a moral, religious person, um, the very foundation of a, your life is performance. Not a breeding ground for joy. You're not going to be happy, right? You'll be very all over the map. So if, but if you're, you know, if someone comes to criticize you, when you're a performance-based person, if someone comes to criticize you, you take it very, very seriously, especially depending on who that person is. Someone you respect, you'll be devastated by their criticism. But if you're true to this gospel and someone, cries, someone comes to you and says, Mike, you're such a this or that and this or that, I'll laugh and I'll say, buddy, you don't even know the half of it. <laughs> yeah, that's just the, the beginning of what's going on in me. And I can kind of take it, I can say, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty messed up. I've got more issues than a newsstand. That's very true. Humor and joy is taken by either superiority or inferiority. That's how humor and joy is taken from you. But the cross takes care of both. Finally, it means that we can, uh, we can now handle loss. We can suffer. There's a difference between being discouraged by your career and being destroyed by your career. Big difference. There's a difference by being affected by your friends' decisions to do what they do or to be fundamentally rocked by those decisions. There's a difference. The idea that Jesus is now our glory and our righteousness, righteousness means that we know how to handle loss. And we can be disappointed, sad, we can suffer. But you know, what does Paul say in Corinthians? We've been struck down but not destroyed. We've been persecuted but not abandoned. We live, you guys, we live in the tension of the here, of the now and not yet. The kingdom of God is now. It has been inaugurated. It is now. It's alive in your heart. It's, you have access to it. And yet, it will be consummated later when Jesus comes back. And that's where we live. That's, a, that's a, a tense place to live. So we will be struck down because we're not there yet. But we won't be destroyed because we have it now. We will be persecuted. We will because we're not there yet. But we won't be abandoned because we're here. The kingdom of God is here. That's where Paul lived. That's where you're living. That's where I'm living. He's our advocate. Not just as a one-time event. All the time. Have him pleading in your head. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there that made an end of all my sin. Let's sing that song.